Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for reminding us how wonderful your name is, Lord. Father, as always, we pray that you make our hearts receptive soil to that which you would say. And if it be your will, allow it to bring forth a crop, 30, 60, even 100-fold, Lord, that your name gets the glory and the honor that it deserves. It's in the mighty matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, today we're picking up in the next chapter of the blessed life. I don't know about you, but the blessed life has been a blessing for me. Definitely eye opening. Um, one of the things that even, you know, just looking at the title, the blessed life and going through the series, reading the book and everything. One of the things that I think was, I don't know, convicting to me or kind of just bubbling in my spirit, if you will, was just the blessed life. I had this sense or this feeling like um, I, I understand that we don't have to uh, work our way to salvation or work to get good things from, from God, but it kind of felt like we had to do some work in order to achieve or obtain a blessed life. And I was wrestling with that. I was going back and forth and I'm like, Lord, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my best, but it just feels like, you know, I'm not, not meeting the mark, if you will. And so then around Thursday after the Lord, let me stew with that for a couple of days. I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was back here getting ready for service or doing something. And the Lord gave me Galatians, the third chapter. And he made it personal for me. So I'm going to read it how he gave it to me. But Galatians, the third chapter, starting at verse one. And this is how he reminded me. He said, you foolish Galatians. He said, foolish Henry. Who has bewitched you? I said, Pastor Russ. He said, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Verse two. It says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Ah. Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And then I jump to verse six. It says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And here it is, verse 8. For the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And that gave me great, that just calmed my anxiety. We have a blessed life. We have a blessed life. Everybody say, we have a blessed, a blessed life. And because we have the blessed life, it takes us to the title of our chapter today. It says, am I generous? Am I generous? Now, I know he didn't want to say, are you generous? Because it's always putting it off from you. If you're asking, are you generous? Are you generous? He wanted to keep it here. Am I generous? To which I had to answer the question. I said, yes. Yes, I'm generous. 
and no. <laughs> no, I'm not. So let me explain. Am I generous? I'm generous when it comes to friends, when it comes to family members, when it comes to even strangers sometimes. I'm generous. I know there were times growing up or when I was a young man starting in the faith, I always wanted to go into a bar and say, hey, drinks are on me. That's how generous I was. Still paying for that one. But I'm generous to my friends, family, and to strangers. But when I say no, not quite, or where I kind of get stuck at, is am I generous to God? Hmm. I couldn't have the same uh, boast that I had with my friends and my family. And so then that drove me into our lesson. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the enemy of generosity. We're going to look at the extravagance of generosity. And then we're going to look at the reward of generosity. All right. So bear with me. I won't keep you long, but we'll get through this. We're going to look at the enemy of generosity. Now, what made it difficult for me is always when you compare yourself to Christ, we are always lacking, always lacking. Just don't build up. And the text that we're going to look at this morning comes out of the Gospel of John. And if you know anything about the Gospel of John, you see a lot of generous acts from Christ. Why? Right in the second chapter of John, you see Jesus changing water to wine. He did it anonymously and for no other reason but to keep the party going, changing water to wine. In chapter four, Jesus heals the official son. Chapter five, he heals the paralyzed man. And in chapter six, you get the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter nine, he heals the, 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 blind, the blind man, the, the man who was born blind, he heals him. And then the ultimate that I think of Jesus's generosity is he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Jesus was a very generous man. In fact, as we go through this message, you'll see just how generous Jesus was. But looking at John chapter 12, starting at verse 1, which is about three months, I think three months later, after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, we find in chapter 1 it says, Jesus, therefore six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, of course she was. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And then it says, Mary shows up and it says that she took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. And it says she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And then it says the house was Filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? 
Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. The Bible declares that he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer or take off the top or creatively borrow, if you will, what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Two questions pop up. Why did she want to give such a generous gift? And we'll get to that one. Another question comes up. It says, why did it bother Judas so much? And we look at, as we look at the passage and the two people, we see that there are two hearts displayed. There's a generous heart. I would even go so far as to say a worshipful heart. There is a loving heart. And then the other heart is a selfish heart. Our first point of the day, the enemy of generosity is selfishness. Now, I'm the baby of the family, and so I didn't have to share too much in my life. Anything that came in was mine. It was mine. But my parents did a good job of teaching me how to share and how to, you know, get along with other people and not to be uh, spoiled, if you will. I may be spoiled just a little bit, but I'm, I'm not out swimming in it, all right? But you notice with kids right off the bat, selfishness. You have to teach them how to be generous. You teach your kids how to share. You know, one of the things <laughs> that I always remember is with my niece. She, she had to be about four years old. We went, went back home to visit with her, visit with her, the family. And she had to be about four years old. And her cousin came in and, want, and wanted to read one of her books. So grabbed one of her books and started reading it. And she got upset and started to get mad. And her mother said, what are, what are you upset about? What's, what's going on? Why are you mad? And she said, I want my book. Then she said, you ain't looked at that book in about four months. What are you sitting here getting mad about a book? She said, we got all these new toys. Take that toy. Let her read that book. And you go on back here or whatever. So she took the toy and went on back and sat down. And so, you know, I'm observing, and I kind of look, and she's kind of sitting on four years old. She's kind of sitting on the edge of the seat, and she just has this look in her eyes. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? Now, I don't talk to kids like they're kids. I talk to them like they're grown. I say, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> I say, what, what, what's bothering you? What seems to be troubling you? What, what, what's going on? What you thinking about? And she said this. She said, how I can get that book back. <laughs> and I thought it just tickled me so much. I said, oh, my goodness, go ahead on. But she was so intent, almost like pinky in the brain. She was so intent on getting that book back. And I just thought, isn't that how it is? We're, 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 we're born with this selfish nature, and we have to learn over time how to be generous or how to share. Now, Judas is looking at this. Now, he says, why wasn't this soul and given to the poor? Now, you know, the Bible says, but we know, Judas, you ain't thinking about the poor. You're not thinking about the poor at all. And most people who complain about giving 
have never given or give very little. We call it pocket watching. Why are you pocket watching what she's doing? Why are you all concerned about what she's doing? And Judas knew that Jesus was going to die soon because he was going to plan or remember he was going to plan to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Mm. He says, this should have been given to the poor. It's like the oldest cover-up for selfishness. It sounds good. It's a, do you know many people believe that Christians shouldn't have nice things? Some people are watching us or looking at the things that we have. Say, hey, hey, why do you have that? Why do you have such a nice car? I don't have that kind of car. Or why do you live in that kind of house? Now, you know, I find myself at times feeling like that, that way when I look at mega pastors and mega preachers sometimes. But just a little bit. I say, hey, if the Lord is blessing, maybe, maybe there's a blessing going on that's greater than I can understand, if you will. But a lot of times we go through that, and it's a common accusation. Now, here's a question. If you think that way, have you sold your stuff? Have you given your stuff away? I can't say no. Remember, I'm the baby. I like nice things. <laughs> but this is a selfish, self-seeking, envious, jealous heart that's trying to justify itself by looking at others. Three things. Selfishness doesn't care about others. Oftentimes, people who suffer with selfishness, they're manipulators. They try to work situations out for their gain. Now, it's all right if you benefit a little bit, but as long as what I'm trying to attain, I can get, hey, it all works out. I think of a pyramid scheme. If you start the pyramid, you're in good shape because everybody under you have to funnel money up to you. And you don't mind that they get blessed and they get money too, but as long as it all funnels and comes up to who's at the top. That's what I think about when I selfishness, selfishness doesn't care about others. Uh, number two, selfishness looks after self, right? Selfishness protects and provides for self. Selfishness provides good reasons not to be generous. Selfishness says, how are we going to hide our true reason for selfishness? Be it fear, greed, envy, or I like this one, covetousness. Covet. I love how God uh, explains covet in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. See, that adds great context to it because it doesn't mean that you're just saying, oh, hey, they have a nice car. I'm going to get a car like that. No, what, what, what God is saying in that definition is you're saying they have a nice car. I want that car. They, they have a nice home. How can I get them out of that home and get that house? He got a nice wife. What I got? You got it. You got it. You understand? <laughs> Covetousness, covetousness is the epitome of selfishness. And then the third thing we're going to look at is God tests our weaknesses and where you get that. I know I asked the question and I don't know if some of you are asking the question, but God is all knowing. If he is all knowing, 
then why would he give the money box to Judas? Who used to go in there and take a little bit, right? And so you would think that that was kind of odd. But oftentimes, God tests us in our place of weakness. And I found that to be true. Now, it's not that he sets us up for failure, but it's just that he wants to grow us in our areas of weakness. He wants to give us strength. Now, I was working on a sermon. I haven't finished it. I kind of put it to the side. But I wanted to do something that contrasts the uh, seven spiritual gifts of Romans 12 with uh, the sin that so easily besets. What that means is, like, if a person is a healer, then what, uh, what one thing they may be predisposed to is that they're isolated. They don't like being around people. How can I heal people if I'm not around them, right? So they're introverts. They're isolated. But the Lord gives them a gift that is to bless people. So they have to come out of it. And because it is a spiritual gift, you have the power to come out of your isolation or to break that sin, if you will. So God is doing this. He's allowing Judas to uh, grow in an area of weakness. But we see uh, that didn't quite happen. Uh, Another thing, he gives us many opportunities to overcome. He gives us opportunities to overcome. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 13 through 14, it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. Now, this is often quoted out of context, if you will. I hear people say all the time, uh, God won't put more on you than you can handle. God, God, God won't, won't let you be uh, burdened to the point where you can't handle it. And that's not what this text is talking about. The text is talking about temptation. It says God won't allow you to be tempted. Uh, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape. So that you will be able to what? Endure it. He will never let you get in a situation that will tempt you in whatever area. He won't allow you be to, to be tempted above that which you can handle. He will always provide a way of escape. And I can attest to that. There have been many times that I've seen the escape route and I've gone the other way. Many times. He's, he's faithful and just, says Judas was taking money out of the box. Now, isn't it amazing that a parallel can be drawn between Judas being a thief and Malachi 3, robbing God? Now, I, I don't know how bold you have to be to rob God, but whew, it has to be a thing where he didn't believe. And so the contrast is the Israelites are coming out of their exile, their Babylonian exile. And they are coming back into the land and they are being allowed to build the temple back, to, to reinstitute their, their practices and everything. But they're coming back with the same heart. It may even be the, a more worse heart than what caused them to go in exile in the first place. And so they were neglecting the things of God on every level. 
And so Malachi comes to chastise them, if you will, and say, God is saying that you're doing this and you're doing that. And then they turn around and say, how are we doing that? What are you talking about? And then it goes to, how have we robbed God? Then he says, you've robbed them in tithes and offerings because the priests were allowing any and everything to come in. They were supposed to be without spot and blemish. They were saying, "Ah, okay, we'll take it. Uh, That's what you got. All right, we'll take it. Come on in. And the people were giving any and everything. They didn't give value to God's laws. They didn't give value to God's institution. They didn't give value to it in any way. And this is almost the same thing. Judas couldn't have given any value to Jesus to sit here and take the offering box, take money out of the offering box. Would any of you think of taking money out of the offering box? No, No, of course not. Some of us would probably rather not be given the responsibility at all if we struggle in that area. But God wants to mature us. He wants to grow us. He wants us to be able to handle money and other things such. Amen? God is teaching us to be good stewards of what we have been given. The enemy of generosity is selfishness. Now let's look at the extravagance of generosity. And this is big. This was Awesome. I, I'm so grateful for Santosh. He kind of set the worship mood. And looking at what Mary does in our passage, it's generous. It's, it's an amazing gift, if you will. But it's more on the lines of worship. It's more on the lines of worship. Now, one of the things we have to establish is the cultural significance of perfume, which is Very practical, if you will. Back in these days in Israel, they didn't have showers and and, and bathtubs, per se, like we did. Cleanliness wasn't uh, as easily attained to. So what they would do is when they would come into people's homes as such a gathering as this, as where it would be a lot of people, there could be some interesting smells going on. So what they would do is they would have perfume, spices, or some other kind of things like that, and they would just take a little dab, and they put it on the forehead. Kind of like what you do with aftershave. You know, you put a little bit on. Goes a long way, right? Smell up the whole room. So they would put a dab on there. So when Mary shows up with the perfume, nobody's not, they're not thinking anything of it, if you will. They're just like, oh, okay, she's doing what is custom to do. But she shows up with the alabaster box. I think Mark tells us that it's the alabaster box. And she shows up with the alabaster box, and this box often represented a family heirloom. It was very, very, very valuable to a family. And we're not talking about rich people here. So this could possibly be the most expensive thing that they had in their possession. Now, the purpose of it was 
It was usually passed down in case of emergencies. So say, you know, I don't know, somebody comes and take you over or there's a famine or, you know, a big storm or whatever that wipes everything out where you're not able to go to work. Well, then you had something that would financially sustain you, right? So she had this family heir, heirloom, and it was only to be used in dire straits. And what made Judas, and if you read Mark's gospel, if you synergize this, this story is in all the gospels. So if you synergize it, put it all together, what not only made Judas take notice and everyone else is what she did with it. It says she didn't go in there. She didn't do it in any dab. It says she poured it out. She poured it all out. How did she pour it all out? She didn't just pour it all out. It says she broke it. She broke it. And then I think it tells us in our, in our scripture that the, the fumes just filled the whole room. And if you look at Mark's gospel, it says everybody was upset. They were bellowing at her with anger. What are you doing? What's going on? Are you crazy? So it wasn't just Judas. Judas has his own purposes, but everybody was looking at her in a certain way. And I think the gospel writers are real nice because I, can, I know Martha was back there having a fit. Are you crazy? And so she breaks it. And what she's saying by this action is you are Lord over me financially. Because that was the financial security of the family. Next thing that she does that caused people to stir is she used it on his feet. Now, again, there's cultural significance here because the feet was the one area that people did not touch, i.e. the disciples getting all chippy with Jesus when Jesus girded himself and uh, proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. The feet was something that you do not touch, and it says that she poured out all the oil. She broke it over his feet, right? So this is another thing. What is she saying there? It says, you are Lord over my life. I, I give myself to you is what Mary is saying. I give myself to you. And then the third thing that made everybody look kind of strange at her. She used her hair to wipe his feet. Now that's the ultimate. She says, you're Lord over me financially. You're Lord over my life. But it also says, you are Lord over my heart. I love you. Why is that significant? Women had their hair up in this culture. You wouldn't take your hair down unless you were at home. If you were married, you were at home with your husband. But never in public and never in a setting as this would you let your hair down. There were strong implications about women who let their hair down. If a woman went out into public in this culture with her hair down and she was married, it was grounds for divorce. Wow. That's how significant it is. But she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet, saying, you are Lord 
over my heart. Now, why would she do this? How did she get so invested in Jesus? Well, if you follow the story of Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus, every time in Scripture we see Mary, we see her at Jesus' feet. The first time we see her, the disciples and Lazarus, they're all coming together for a little gathering, and Jesus is teaching. And Martha is serving, slaving away, getting food together and doing everything. And she looks over and she says, Jesus, won't you tell her to get up and come help me? And now what she was asking was okay, it was good. But Jesus says, this is the better thing. Mary is doing the better thing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, learning from him. It's going to be significant in a minute. The next time we see Mary is when Lazarus has died. And Jesus finally shows up four days later. later, And it says, Martha comes running out. And she says, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't be dead. But now we'll see him again, I know, in the resurrection. And Jesus says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection. And then you see Mary come out and she runs and she falls at his feet. And she says the exact same thing that Martha says, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And then instead of admonishing her, giving her, I am the resurrection, you get the smallest verse in all the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Mm. Then the third time is this time we're talking about. You see that she comes in with this expensive oil and she anoints his feet. Every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. Now, is an extravagant gift given from the heart a waste? Absolutely not. My suspicion is that she understood something not even the disciples could grasp. Now, because of the action that happened with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, if you read later on in the chapter, it says because of this, the Pharisees had made it their goal to kill Jesus. The people talked about it. She would have heard about that in this little community. She would have heard about it. She would have known about it. And she knows that because of what Jesus did, that he was now going to die. And so when she shows up and she makes this generous offering, if you will, Jesus says, she is preparing me for my death. How in the world? Could she gather that, number one, because she sat at his feet learning from him, which is why worship, there are many facets to worship. There's the actual singing. There's the actual raising of hands and proclaiming and professing. It's all a part of worship. There is giving. Giving is also an act of worship. Uh, uh, when pastor gets up here to preach, that's an act 
of worship. But what, what, what also goes into worship is study, Bible study. And I am such an advocate for Bible study because she was able to grasp something that his own inner circle couldn't understand. Wow. And Jesus says that she prepared his body for death. He was going to die. Jesus was going to give everything. Now, she may not have understood the magnitude of that, but we do. Jesus gave everything. The one who owns everything gave everything. I ask you a question. How much do you think would impress God? How much could you give him that would make him say, man, ah, they're taking care of me now? How much? Everything Heart. Heart? Everything you have? Yeah. Well, watch this. I was praying to the Lord one day. I said, Lord, you know, I'm just fascinated by everything that you do, everything that you've done. And I have a question for you. I said, what is a billion years like? It's a billion years like. And he said to me, it's like a second. I said, whoa. Wow. I said, Lord, what is a billion dollars like? He said, to me, it's like a penny. Then I started to get clever. I don't know if Judas came in or whatever. I said, Lord, you said I could ask you for anything, right? I said, Lord, can, can I have a penny? He said, sure, my son, in a second. Just had to add it in there, whatever, whatever. But what can you give God that would impress him? Your heart. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 5. And it says, and this, not as... And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The most extravagant gift that you can give God is yourself. Yes, is yourself. That is my time. That is my talent. And that is my treasure. I give it all to him. And I'm looking at Mary and what Mary must have gleaned from Christ, from her relationship with him, from being in an intimate relationship with him that would cause her to give. Some have estimated the cost of that perfume to be about a year's salary. We know that because that's the plural of denarius. Denarius is uh, the single coin, which was considered a day's wage. Said it could have been sold for 300 denarii, which, you know, you take away the feast days and holidays and all that other stuff, you get about 300. So it was a year's salary that she just, uh, some considered wasted, that she gave to Jesus in an act of worship, if you will. And you say, what would spurn you to do that? Well, because you understand that he gave everything. 
Remember, I told you that we have the blessed life because of what he gave. He already gave everything. So what's my response? My response is, whatever you need, Lord, whatever you want, and I'll like it. I'll li- I won't complain, Lord, whatever it is, because you understand that. Now, going into the third part, here's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is the reward of generosity. And we're going to look at Mark 14, verse 9. And it says, truly, I say to you that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, we already talked about this story is in every gospel. It's in every gospel. And if you synergize it, you would understand that she didn't have the best reputation. But after her encounter with Jesus and what he has done for her, we don't know about the bad stuff that she's done. We don't know what that negative reputation could have been. All we know about are the generous, the wonderful and beautiful things that she did for Christ. That's all we know. So Christ, God gives you as a reward and identity. He changes your identity. Now, I told you earlier, we all struggle with stuff. We all have a past, if you will. Henry in the bar buying it out for everybody in the past. We all have a past. But once we have encountered Christ, he begins to give us a new identity. I think it says you are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away, right? So all of that is put behind. And now you know me as Henry. Henry the good. I don't know. Henry the good, good guy. Because my old, my old ways are gone. He gave her a new identity. She came with an extravagant extravagant gift for the Lord, and she was rewarded. She was rewarded with this memorial. Hebrews 11, 6, 11, chapter 11, verse 6 says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek them. Now, do you know that that word rewarder is nowhere else in the Bible? Nowhere else. And I think it means it means to pay wages or to uh, go above and beyond. But God will go above and beyond. But watch this. He already has. He already has. See, sometimes I have to wrestle in my mind that if God never does another thing for me, he has already done enough. He's already done enough for me. He's taking care of something that I otherwise couldn't be able to take care of on my my own. If you look at a Out of all mankind, our history on this planet, not a single one has been able to answer or deal with or come back from death. Except for one. 
Jesus, of course. And because of that, he now gives us, me, we, eternal life. He takes care of our biggest problem as human beings. And for me, that's enough. That is worth everything that I have. It's almost Jesus kind of alludes to this in some of his parables. The parable about the guy working in the field. And he's working and working and it says that he comes upon a treasure. And so he takes the treasure. Then he goes, buries it somewhere else because he don't want nobody else to find it. He buries it somewhere else. And then it says he goes away and he sells everything he has. And he comes back and he buys the field so that he has ownership, legal ownership of that treasure which he found valuable. We have found Christ. How valuable is Christ to you? 100% valuable. Come on. 100% valuable. He means everything to me. God rewards those who diligently seek them. This is a promise. God rewards over and above extravagantly. We don't give to get rewards. We give. God always gives. We don't give to get rewards, but God always rewards. Why? Because he's a rewarder. Now, I told you because he's already done it, but there are other ways that God shows up in our lives uh, to meet needs. Now, I can tell you there have been, I don't think there has been one need in my life that I've ever gone without. God has always provided, always made sure I had. Now, I can even sit here and say there are wants that the Lord has even blessed me with. There are some things that I, I had desire. I have a big testimony even coming out here. When we moved here, <coughs> when we moved here, it was, it happened so fast. We were on our way to the beautiful, wonderful state of Hawaii for a lovely vacation in Maui. And I think it had to be like a day before we were getting ready to go. We got a call from our then landlord saying that he wanted to sell the house. And he said he wanted to give us first dibs to buy it if we were interested. And, uh, but if not, he had to sell it. And he had to sell it fast. I think he gave us like 30 days to get it together. We were about to be gone for 14. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. I said, you want to buy the house we are? want to be in Reno. I said, okay. I said, well, we're going to have to make a, de a decision what we want to do. And she said, well, now would probably be a perfect time for us to go back to California. This is where we came from. My daughter was in college here, so it just made sense. But we didn't know how we were going to do this. And so now you talk about, and, and how do you take that knowledge which you on a vacation to Hawaii? which is why I think I need a do-over because I was worried about too much. <laughs> but we got back and we hit the ground running, hit the ground running, trying to figure out, are we going to get a hotel, apartment, this and that? How are we going to move? Are we going to get movers? Because last time we came, we only had an apartment full of stuff. When we left, we had a 2,500-square-foot house full of stuff. And so now we had to figure out how we were going to get all of this stuff somewhere. And so we ended up doing some creative things and we were able to figure out how to get it all packed or whatever. And we moved here. We had to move back because it had to happen so fast. We had to move into an apartment. And so then not only did we have to move into an apartment, half the stuff was put in the storage. 
So we're sitting here, and we're like, oh, my goodness, my wife is miserable. She did not want to move back into an apartment. So we moved, and we're looking. So we're all moved in, and she is just so miserable. I mean, I just I felt so bad. It was just it was terrible. And I would say maybe a week. Now, mind you, we had to sign this big lease, this lease for, what, I think a year or something. So we signed this lease with the apartment, and I would say five days later we get a call saying, hey, there's a house available if you want to come take a look at it. Now, in my mind, I'm the man, I'm like, I already signed the lease. I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm not breaking the lease and paying two rents. That's not going to happen or whatever. And my wife was like, well, let's just go take a look at it. So we go take a look at it, and the guy's nice, the neighborhood nice, everything's beautiful and wonderful. And so we, we decide that we want the house. But now we have to, oh my God, we have to pay for the apartment as well as the house. And now, here's the, here's the good thing. Now, the apartment that we got was probably the best one that they had. It was their top, top apartment or whatever. And so... We, I tried to explain to the lady, tell them what happened. I was like, maybe there's a clause, like, within five days you can get out of the lease or something like that. She was, no, but she was nice. What she said was, she said, if anybody comes to rent it, then we'll rent it to them and we'll break the lease and you can go scot-free. But you have to pay it until somebody takes it over, basically. And so I said, well, that's the best that we got. That's the best that we got. So we moved into the house. We got in there. Everything's fine. You know, the very next day, somebody wanted the apartment, and we didn't have to pay two rents. Thank God. Now, that's not the capital. Here's, here's, here's all of how God is pulling all of the strings here. My next-door neighbor, he's been here visit, but he was a pastor. I was still in seminary. I was in my last year of seminary, and I needed, uh, like, a, a, a mentor, somebody to kind of walk through. But I didn't know anybody here. I had just got here. My next-door neighbor was a pastor because I saw he had this sign. He was like, something said, if Jehovah's Witness come here, I'm a Christian and this and that or whatever. I said, okay. So I saw him one day, and I said, excuse me, sir. I said, are you a pastor? And he just kind of chuckled and he said, yes, yes, I am. And I said, wow, we got to talking. Do you know me and this guy were from the same church uh, before we left California? We attended the same church in Inglewood. So we had a relationship. And then he, he further told me that he had been praying that the neighbors that moved into the house next to him would be saved and would be good neighbors. And he had talked to the landlord and let him know the kind of people that he was looking for. So God just orchestrated this whole thing for us to get here. And we were questioning. We were like, should we be moving back? Should we do this? Should we go? And I just I felt peace the whole way through. And that was God once again showing up, rewarding, I'll say my wife's faithfulness, because sometimes I get shaky, but rewarding our faithfulness. And I just, I thought that was so great. So yes, God is a rewarder. I can testify. Amen. Amen. I remember when I was eight, speaking of rewards, I remember when I was eight, I found this wallet on the ground. And the wallet had a ton of money in it. And I remember my big mouth. I, I was eight. I saw that. I saw the money. And I yelled. I said, whoo, I'm rich. 
And then all my cousins came running over to see what it was. And then my auntie came over and she was like, no, 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 no. You can't keep that. We have to turn that in because somebody may have lost this a lot of money. Like it wasn't a regular wallet. This was like, you know, people who do business and they have like their money back then. And they dropped it. She said, somebody may really be needing this. So we need to turn this into the authorities. And what is it? But she said this. She said, but there may be a reward. And if there is, I'll make sure you get it. Now, I ain't seen no reward. And that was about 30 years ago. But whatever. I hope somebody was blessed. But we look for rewards. And God is a rewarder. We don't do what we do. We don't give to ex expecting to get a reward, but God will take care of us. And that's, that's the emphasis that we're putting on there. Yeah. A generous heart stems from a grateful heart. Yeah. Mary had this perspective. She had this perspective because God had already done amazing things in her life. He had done something so wonderful, brought her brother back from the dead. Now, I tell you what, I would give any and everything I had to get some loved ones back if I could. Or more so, if you think about it, if someone saves your life, then you kind of feel like you're indebted to them, right? You feel like, hey, whatever it is you need, a kidney or whatever, a foot, a toe, you can have it. Because if it was not for you, then I may not be here. And so you have that kind of that kind of feeling, and that's what she had. And I look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is, watch this, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast, for we are all his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen. Our response to how good God is, is watch this, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you have need. And so when I was talking about in the beginning, when I said, Am I generous? Yes, I'm generous to my friends, family, strangers maybe. But am I generous to God? Hmm. Maybe not all the time, right? When you think about everything that he's done for us, everything that he's, how he's met us, you have to examine your life. Now, this was the hard part. This was the hard part, but this is how he helped me. I happen to be looking at a book, and I, I, I'll recommend this book to anyone uh, who sees it or who can find it. It's called God and Money, and this is the title. It says, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. And I happen to be just looking, looking through it, just reading something, and read a little synopsis about it. And basically what it is, is these two guys. These two guys, they had set their lives up to be perfect. These are rich people. 
They set their lives up to be perfect. One guy was a saver. He made sure he saved money and, and what have you. And then the other guy was a spender. I mean, he liked to have nice things. He made a lot of money, so he had, liked to have nice things, nice cars and clothes and houses and all of that other stuff. But the thing that was uh, unifying between the two of them, they were both tithers. They tithe faithfully every week, 10% of whatever it is that they brought in. They tithe. And so what happened was they had all of these uh, aspirations, but they wanted to, to, to do better. They wanted to, to grow. So they went to Harvard MBA school, whatever, business school, so they can get their MBAs. And this is where they met. And so they were talking, talking about their goals and their dreams and everything, and they found out they were Christians, and they talked about this. And so they wanted to kind of explore because they felt uh, unfulfilled. They felt like they were just on autopilot as far as their giving was concerned, even though they were given like the tithe, the maximum, if you will. But they felt un unforgiven. And of course, because they were giving out of their wealth, they had a lot of money left over, whatever. So they decided to take a class uh, at the seminary called God and Money. And so in this class, they learned all kind of concepts with the Bible. You have to read it, just all these good things. But they questioned themselves and their commitment to God. And so what they ended up doing is they decided to write a paper. This was their final paper. They decided to write a paper about this journey. Now with the journey, what they did was they went and grabbed like a hundred of the alumni who had already graduated from the seminary and asked them questions. Uh, how much do you make? What's your income? I mean, aggressive questions. Well, how much do you give? Do you tithe? All of this other stuff. And they asked them the questions. Well, overwhelming, they got an overwhelming response of these people that came back. So they had all these responses. And what they found were these people were giving like crazy. Like some of, if you read some of the stories, there was this one guy who figured out how he could give away 50% of his income, 50%. And that's not the crazy part. The crazy one was this other guy they were talking to who gave away the majority of his salary. And so they had to talk to this guy. They called him. And so basically he told them that he set up his life. So uh, he bought all of these uh, expensive life insurance policies and he did some sort of savings investment thing so that if anything happened to him, his family would be well off. They would be secure. But other than that, he gave away everything. Now, this is, they didn't say exactly how much he made, but he had to make a lot of money because they said he could save for his retirement. All he had to do was save for three months and he would have enough money to retire on. But instead of doing that, he decided to stretch it out over 30 years so that he could continue to give away the majority of his salary. I'm sitting here reading like, oh my goodness. And they were like floored. They were like, that is crazy. But what it did was it made them re-engage themselves and their commitment, not just to a church or anything like that, but to how they gave towards the kingdom, missions, whatever it is. And so each one kind of, you know, did whatever they had to. I think one guy, he, I think he came to where he wanted to give away like 25% of his salary to missions, orphanages, and other things like that. 
But the other guy, he complete, he quit his job. He went and joined a nonprofit over in another country, and he, him and his wife are doing missionary work, sold everything, got rid of it. But it was because they chose to engage God. They chose to meet God on a deeper level, if you will. Like the tithe wasn't, if I gave a tithe, I'd be like, okay, I'm good. Thank you, Lord, all day. But they engaged God deeper far beyond the, uh, the tithe or whatever they were normally giving. And this is what he said. This is one of the things the guy that left and sold everything said. He said, I'm grateful that I chose this journey because God has shown so much more to me than if I would have stayed on the career path that I was on. And I'm so grateful that I engaged God and we saw this. Now, mind you, they were going to school for a whole nother reason. But God met them or they met God and they were able to, I don't know, get to another level. Now, I don't know how you get to that level, but you think about what Mary gave and what she did for, for Christ and the level of the mindset that she must have had. You know, I pray and ask, Lord, to take me deeper in you. And this is not just about money. This is about everything. Remember, she said, you're Lord over my wealth. You're Lord over me. You're Lord over my heart. And that is a place that I know I want to go. I know that's a place that I want to be because it's so easy to get wrapped up in these things and stuff. Especially for me, I told you I was the baby. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in life as we know it. This is what you have to do. You have to go to, to, go to school, you have to get a job, and you have to provide and do all of this other stuff. And there's so much more to life. But you have to trust God. He won't force it upon you. And I believe that some of us will get there and he'll welcome us with open arms. But then as we sit around and tell our stories, he'll say, there was so much more you could have done. There was so much more you could have experienced. There was so much more life that was meant for you to have if you would have just gotten out of your shell. If you would have explored more. Now, this isn't uh, antagonizing to anybody. This is, that's not what it's meant to be. It just means that sometimes we have to push deeper. We have to push deeper in, whatever that may be. We each have an individual intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior. And sometimes all it is is just asking. I asked for a billion dollars. He told me to wait a second. But sometimes you have to be able to ask the hard questions, Lord. Am, am, am I walking in the way that you want me to walk? Am I doing what it is that you've called me to do? Because he won't force himself on you. Am I giving how you ask me to give? Now, that has to come from on high. I don't think I can make the decision to just give everything I got and move or go here. I need the Lord to be on his most high seat and send me a telegram and say, hey, this is what I need you to do. This is where I need you to go. But I want my heart to be willing to accept it, to trust him in that, wherever it would be that he would take us. So that's my encouragement for you. Am I generous? I know Summit Water of Life is generous. I see the books. 
And every time we have a, a, a drive or a, a goal that we need to meet as far as giving the missions or doing this, you guys blow it out of the water every time. So much so the staff sits here and say, man, we can't ask them for no more, man. We always ask and we always doing this. But you guys meet the call every single time. But that's not what it is. I'm just saying that sometimes the Lord has more for us, whatever it may be. And sometimes you just, you have to dig deeper, but you have to ask the Lord, what do you have for me? And I know this was such, this was an eye-opening message for me. And then for the Lord to give me that book, like I want to read it. I want to read what other people are doing and all the creative ways that they're making it work. We live in inflation's off. I paid $7 for gas the other day. Are you crazy? It's insane. But my dad told me something. He said, God was good when gas was $2. He's still good when it's $7. I, I can fill it up either way. It doesn't matter because God is good. Yes, God is good. We have a blessed life. We are blessed. And because of that, our response will be, Lord, whatever you need from me. Amen? Amen. That's our blessing this morning. I'm going to pray us out, and then we can be on our way. We can get ready for our living waters class. Amen. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. I pray that it reaches the soil that it was meant to reach, Father. And, of course, if it's your will, Lord, allow it to bring a crop to a harvest, Father. We are blessed over here. We are highly blessed and highly favored, Lord, because you have been so good to us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, and everything that you will do, Lord. Father, we pray that everything at home is better than when we left it, Lord. We pray for traveling grace and mercy. We, we bless the food of the places we're going to eat and everything, Lord. We just ask that you be with us, Father. Continue to carry the momentum of your word today throughout the week, Lord. And if we need a refresher, Lord, we'll meet here on Wednesday for Bible study. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And the church say, amen. Amen. God bless you.